Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. All right, podcasting again, another amazing week. I'm so excited today. I feel like I just met a new dear friend in the last five minutes. <laughs> well, maybe it's been 15 already. We, we're, we're chatty. <laughs> um, I found Mike yesterday, I believe. Maybe it was the day before. And so quickly felt like this person needs to be on the podcast. <laughs> And um, we've really just had our first conversation and I'm just so excited to hear your story and learn more about what you do um, with my audience. Um, so the way I run my podcast is that I like my guests to introduce themselves because I feel like what is it that you want to share with my audience today about who you are, how you got here, why would, why would you come on a podcast like this? Um, so instead of reading a bio, I like you to just say, Hey, I'm here. I'm Mike. This is my story. <laughs> sure. Um, so as you mentioned, my name is Mike. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, which is right outside of Washington, DC. And I am currently the development director for an abortion clinic, an abortion provider actually, mm -hmm. uh, in Northern Virginia, which serves basically the, the Virginia suburbs of Washington, DC. Coming into that, though, I have some vast experience being a volunteer clinic escort. Mm. I have some experience uh, traveling around to different clinics in different parts of the country uh, to be able to observe what kind of things happen. Mm -hmm. And all around, I've learned a lot about not only reproductive access, but reproductive justice along the way. Mm. So that's the general. I can go oh. on here and tell you how I got here, but that's going to be a long story. All right. Well, I mean, we're curious. We're all curious how, so um, I know we just met, but part of my story is that I was a birth doula and I'd been to some midwifery school. Like I was very much in the world of reproductive health. So most of my friends were in that world. And I texted my OB who was a girlfriend, but she was headed on vacation. And so I ended up with a male provider who I didn't know very well. And he was amazing, <laughs> like totally, completely amazing. But many of us want to know what leads a man into this work, into this field. Like, I think sometimes in my experience attending births, some of the male nurses were just my absolute favorite. There's something very special that um, leads people into this kind of care. So I am curious if you don't mind sharing a bullet note version of how you got here. <laughs> sure. It's going to start pretty far back, but I'll make it bullet notes as well. Um, grew up in a very liberal uh, Jewish household. Okay. I was about eight or nine. I saw an envelope on the table. Uh, my parents were making a donation to this organization called Planned Parenthood. Uh, I had no idea what that was because Planned Parenthood, what? So in this case, though, I asked my mom, what is this? And what? then my mom went through this huge explanation of what abortion was. 
Wow. And then she also kind of like went through a lot of the uh, birds and the bees type of uh, conversations that I hadn't gotten before with a very, very big overdrive there. Um, but from there, I kind of realized, you know, from what the way that I learned that this is something which is, you know, an important issue. And it's something that at the time was not necessarily, you know, it hadn't been legal for a long period of time at, at that point, yeah. talking about uh, early 80s, late 70s. So this was still something which was very new. And it also just reflected where my parents' values were at, that this was something which was very important, that bodily autonomy is very important for everybody. Wow. Fast forward to the mid 90s and in my college newspaper, I saw an article about clinic escorting, mm. volunteering in front of clinics to help um, get patients and companions inside the building. And I tell my I mean, mom, exist. I'm still like, I'm just viewers or listeners can't see me, but I'm just shaking my head. Like, how do you exist on the planet? This is amazing. College, young college man decides I'm going to volunteer to be a clinic escort. So <laughs> I, I think that's kind of neat. And I hadn't really seen anything about it, but I talked to my mom and I said, this sounds really cool. Yeah. My mom said, yeah, you're not doing that. Ah. But, <laughs> In the early 90s, it was a very dangerous time in front of abortion mm -hmm. clinics. Yeah. The clinic. So there was a lot of violence there. Uh, there were issues with, um, with, with uh, doctors being shot at, uh, with clinics being firebombed all over the place. And my mom said that this is very dangerous. And yeah. I kind of like put it off and didn't really think much about it after that. My mom passed away very suddenly in 2006. Hmm. And at the time, I was going through my own kind of introspection of everything because, you know, it was still a very big shock to my system. And in that, when I was surfing the web, I found this article about clinic escorting in Louisville, Kentucky. There's one abortion clinic in Kentucky. It's in Louisville. It's called EMW. And they had a blog called EverySaturdayMorning.net, which is still, it's still an active blog at this point. Uh, but it is about clinic escorting there. And I said, this probably exists still in the DC area. So I did my own Google search and looked and I found that, yes, it doesn't exist in the Washington DC area. And I think it was six months or a year or something like that afterwards, I finally got up the nerve to say, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna go to one of their trainings. And just very jokingly, I said, well, my mom can't stop me now. Um, I went to one of their trainings and I learned what being a clinic escort is. Mm. I learned about how it's really rooted in de-escalation and it's rooted in, you know, personal autonomy. And wow. since then I became, you know, I became a clinic coordinator for one of the clinics that uh, we escort at. I've become yeah. a training coordinator. I've become president of the organization. <laughs> I've done a lot of stuff with the organization that really just spoke to me. Yeah. It was something where I really felt like this is something which I really want to do. I really, the whole notion about bodily autonomy, I think really is what spoke to me. Mm. Everybody else who knew my mom said, yeah, she would absolutely love this, that you're doing this, mm -hmm. um, which was really very nice. My mom was a feminist who had kids, you know, she had me in 1972, right before Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So it was something which was like a very, it, it was a very strong thing for her. It wasn't something that she talked about all that much because- I was nine and, you know, it wasn't something that really she needed to talk about until I brought it up. Um, but yeah, that was really where she stood on it. And 
I just started to, to hang out with people who also felt like it was a very important value. Mm. Since then, so many different things have happened. I decided that I wanted to go into this career. Um, let's backtrack a little bit more. Um, I had a corporate job that I decided to leave in 2019 because it really wasn't satisfying me so much. And I decided- oh, Not too long ago. Not too long ago. Um, it was okay. a- it, it was nice because I was able to get a, a good um, a good severance package for it. Yeah. In the meantime, though, I had also networked with other clinic escorts in different parts of the country. Yeah. I had visited other uh, clinics, for example, the one in Kentucky, and I saw yeah. what was going on there. It was a very different type of environment than what we had in my clinic in Virginia, because uh, in Kentucky, the, um, the attitudes are very, very much stacked against the clinic mm. by... Uh, the locals, as well as by law enforcement. I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, which had on, has on a regular basis over 200 protesters there every Saturday morning. Um, I knew that there were areas in the country which were very different from the DC area, which is still pretty liberal, but still has its own issues. Yeah. So I decided this would be a great opportunity for me to research this more. So in 19, in, not 19, in 2019, I decided I would take a trip and I would visit abortion clinics around the country. I started with abortion clinics in the deep south. So I went to Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, wow. and Alabama to visit those clinics. And I visited other clinics as well in Ohio, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, uh, even in Boston, and then Arizona. And I interviewed people who were on the street in front of the clinic. I wanted to see what was going on there, what happened specifically with protesters and with abortion clinic escorts. So I got a lot of interviews in and wow. somewhere in Alabama, I just realized I want to help more. I want this to be what I want to do. Wow. The next year, 2020, um, I decided to go back to school. I mentioned college beforehand. I got, actually dropped out of college in 1995 and I decided mm -hmm. to go back to school because I was thinking about a degree in public health. So after a 25 year hiatus, I went back for my undergrad degree. And I decided to ask if I could have a part-time job working at this clinic in Falls Church, Virginia, which is where I work right now. And I got a part-time job right about the time that COVID started. Yeah. And then we decided at that point that ne things needed to really shift. We wanted to minimize the amount of time that patients had to be inside the clinic. How do you move things online? How do you make sure everybody remains safe? From there, over the summer, I finished my degree. Uh, and then I was able to really shape the job into doing a little bit more on the business side of things uh, and being able to take a look at the patient experience and do a little bit more regarding security for the clinic. So that's where right now I'm the development director. Um, but all of that really has been a journey that's taken me from, you know, just asking about what Planned Parenthood is, learning about that, learning about bodily autonomy, and then getting to this point where Every day, I might not be facing patients specifically because I'm not one of the clinicians, I'm not one of the counselors. Yeah. I am facilitating abortion access, and I feel like that is what's really very important. Wow. What a powerful statement. I am facilitating abortion access. Three cheers for all the people doing that work. Thank you. I will um, say that, uh, I'm sorry, the no. video that you saw had to do with uh, abortion uh, provider appreciation day. Yeah, I was just gonna say, we just went through that, but last week was very much focused on our gratitude for the abortion providers, which is never ending gratitude. 
on the anniversary of the day that um, Dr. David Gunn was gunned down by a, um, an anti-choice protester. Mm -hmm. And this is really a commemoration for him because it still is dangerous. It still does have its risks mm -hmm. to it. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why this came about and why you're talking with me, I guess. Yes, I did. I saw your video, but I, like I told you, it wasn't even the video that caught me. I was just like, what's, what's happening? And I went to your Instagram account and thought, wow, this is, there's a story here that I think our audience would love. When you said you saw that envelope at eight or nine and Planned Parenthood, um, headed to Planned Parenthood, what I wrote down as a note was our children are future providers, which is such a powerful thing to remember. The way we talk to our children, I have three children. One is a seven-year-old boy, so not too far from eight or nine. He hears me talk about abortion all the time. I have two teenage girls. Um, but it is so important for those of us who have done the healing work and can share our stories to be open with our kids because they are the future access for people. It's, uh, Absolutely. it's a big deal to be able to have a conversation like that with your eight or nine-year-old son. So I applaud your mom. Um, I have a feeling she's probably looking down on us because that's kind of my belief system. <laughs> she was like, hey, you and you, you should podcast together. All right, done. <laughs> Not only that, but uh, in trying to write a book, which by the way, that was the research I was doing was for a book, which oh, um, I realized after a while. Travel, the travel research. Travel, right. yeah. um, okay. After a while, I realized I wasn't very good at writing books. I can write little articles and blog entries and stuff like yeah. that. But uh, so the book kind of has remained on a permanent hiatus. But in that research, I also asked about my mom and her family. And I realized a couple different things out of my own research that my mom not only was very active in terms of you know being able to take a look at reproductive access, mm. but that my grandmother in the 60s um, volunteered at Planned Parenthood. I had no idea. I got chills on that one. Wow. Wow. And do you remember your grandmother? I remember my grandmother. She um she passed away six months before my mom did. Wow. So, wow. But, at that point, I really hadn't had any kind of reason to talk to her about this. Um, of course not. This yeah. never come up. And then by the time that I really started getting interested in this, um, you know, when I was in college, you know, things, it wasn't very easy to communicate with her. Mm. Um, but my mom's sister gave me a lot of the history for it. And yeah. I wish I had these conversations when she was alive. Yeah. Um, but it's just, really a cool thing to be able to see this history that seems to really coincide and really is aligned with what my values are now so wow. it's a nice thing to see were other people in the family also sort of liberal activists like voters not especially not anything that i really would say um did much we're a jewish family and i think that uh as a jewish family we have certain values to determining our own social mm -hmm. actions yeah uh, and we we really were raised with that so when it comes yeah. down to being able to help the poor uh being able to be aware of um of injustices being able to be aware of abuse certain things like that those were values which were instilled upon us um I don't think that my parents were the, the types to um, get arrested when they're protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, that was their, that, that's their cohort age-wise. But 
I think that they still had these values that were instilled, uh, which I think is, is still very important. Of course, you're going to need the protesters, but you're going to need the people who are supportive. And yeah, absolutely. Right. Do you have siblings who also have found, you don't have to tell me what they do, but found their way in this kind of work? I have a brother who is a congregational rabbi in New Jersey. Okay. And he is also very much aligned with uh, social justice work. Wow. His wife actually is also a rabbi. She teaches hospital chaplaincy uh, in New York City. Mm. So there is a lot of that as well when it comes down to the way that, um, you know, the values are, are, are there. It's really being able to educate people, being able to let people know about our history, being able to let people know about what uh, is important to us, I think really has been a big value growing up, but also just in our personal family as well. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, more thanks and honor to your mom and grandma for raising amazing people. <laughs> um, okay. I just, it's so fascinating. And thank you for sharing all that. What do you feel like your work is now? Like, what is your, what are your goals and missions and dreams these days in terms of your voice in this conversation of reproductive justice? I think that's two questions. My, my job, my day job in this case, yeah. is really trying to maximize the performance and the patient experience. Yeah. Patients who are going through this experience, which can be a very varied experience for so uh -huh. many different people. For some people, it's a very excruciating uh, decision. For some people, this is yeah. exactly what they know that they want to do. Totally. It's making sure that they have that access it's making sure that the access is really there. It also means, you know, trying to figure out how funding works, um, how we are able to make sure that it is affordable as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, considering that in Virginia, um, you know, Medicaid and Medicare and government funding at this point uh, will not cover abortion access. So it's, it's a lot of those different types of things to really say, how are we gonna make sure that we're able to provide these services to people who, um, to people with uteruses, because this doesn't yeah. just mean abortions. This means any other type of gynecological health. Yeah. Um, yeah. We do IUD and uh, other long-acting long reversible contraception, LARC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do those insertions and then removals as well. We also will do some counseling. We'll also be able to um, work with patients who are looking for birth control pills. So we do a lot of that, but I think that being able to have that accessible and being able to have that available in a friendly environment, which is non-judgmental, mm -hmm. and which is able to really make people feel like they're making their own decisions is, is quite important. Yeah, so important, so important. Was that part, was that both parts? I feel like that. That was part one. I'm not yeah. really good at this. Part two, in terms of what kind of things I want to do. When I started as a clinic escort, yeah, I think I was doing it for the right reasons initially in my head, I wasn't really doing it in the right way. And I think the part of that was I oh, wanted to- I love this. <laughs> I already love this. <laughs> I think that I wanted to be the hero. Mm. And I thought maybe this is a way that I'd be able to do that. Maybe this will be the way that I can really be like out there. Helping out is okay. But I really thought that I was gonna be the hero. I had to learn that it wasn't my job to be the hero. And that a lot of times, and this also took me a lot of, long time to, to learn, um, often because of my status in society, 
often is assumed that that's an entitlement to be able to be that hero, to be the person, mm -hmm. to be able to, to help out. Fortunately, within the community, there are a lot of people who are able to really you know, help me assess that. Um, I had friends who were able to really help me find what my privilege was. And those conversations were tough conversations to yeah. be able to really say that I have male privilege. Well, men have problems too. That's not what it means. I have white privilege. Well, white people, you know, we don't have everything all that easily. Um, I think you mentioned that on one of your, your podcasts as well, that when you were talking about racial justice and reproductive justice. Yeah. Learning that is a tough thing to do because you have to take a look at things and say what you, your vantage point, what you already had, you weren't seeing everything. And there are certain things that are unpleasant that you're going to need to see. Yeah. Part of that was that I'm in a movement which is run primarily by cisgender women. Um, and that as a cisgender man, I need to make sure that I'm not speaking over women in the situation, that I'm doing my job of amplifying, but that this isn't really where I'm supposed to be taking leadership. This isn't where I'm going to be the hero saving the day. Mm. This is a place where I can work alongside people to make sure that everything is happening okay. Mm. But I'm not a spokesperson. Um, I am somebody who wants to make sure that there is support. Yeah, that's yeah. something that sometimes is very hard for men to really figure out and realize. And there's often a lot of pushback. I understand the pushback because I pushed back. Yeah, but it's something which eventually I was able to learn. Once I learned that, it was also more about reproductive justice and what reproductive justice is, which I think you've also covered on the show too. It's not necessarily just abortion. It has to do with the willingness and um, opportunity to either have or not have children according to your own desires and schedules. And then also how you raise them, making sure that you have the resources available, making sure that the streets are safe, making sure you're not in a domestic abusive situation. So there's so much that goes around that in terms of really having that autonomy as well. And a lot of that is really based on certain racial lines that are drawn in terms of you know, what kind of resources people have and what kind of culture people have. Yeah. So being able to realize that also really was an eye-opening experience because I wanted to, I, I didn't know that I had to be taking a look for this. Once I knew, once I was told about this, once sometimes people had to kind of lecture me about this, it became a lot clearer. Yeah. It's still a work in progress though, because I need to um, continuously assess where I'm at, and continuously assess and say, hey, is my privilege uh, getting in the way of things? Am I aware of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not that far. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you figuring it all out and learning and, and assessing my own privilege. And I am, I don't have the sex, you know, I, I don't have the male privilege that you have, but I have a lot of other privileges and, um, and I'm learning all this too. And I, it's been a really interesting journey for me because, and I don't know if you felt this as well, but to step into the work I almost had to put on my hero hat just to be brave enough. Like, at least that's my story. Like I just needed so much courage. And so part of the hero identity was like, just, it was like my armor almost. And then now I'm just, it's been a journey for me and I'm doing a lot of softening and settling in and a lot more listening and a lot more adapting. Um, 
so I'm right there with you on the journey and I appreciate you sharing that it's work that we're all going to be doing for the rest of our, our lives for sure. Hopefully our children will reap the benefits of, of what we change, any change we can, we can create, but we have a long way to go. <laughs> long way to go. But we're in the right direction and that, that's what's important. We are, we absolutely are. Um, wow. Amazing. Even there's an element of privilege in my particular style of talking about abortion, which is to, to speak to the complicated feelings we have, you know, the complexity and the nuance. And as a privileged person, I can do that. And I think it's very important, but I have to be honest about the fact that when I say I was sad after abortion, that can be used against the entire movement to reduce access to people who don't have the privilege I had to get, get the care itself. So yeah, it's, it's been a journey. I'm, I'm just still trying to navigate it and remember that, you know, all of our voices are important. Um, but we do have to be careful sometimes how we use them. Absolutely. And yeah. how we specifically decide not to use them or not really not use them, but how we decide to redirect to other people's voices that aren't necessarily heard as much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, that's another piece too of the taking on the hero heroine identity so that you can build the platform so that you can raise the other voices, right? I think that is, that's a good thing to remember too, is part of what I'm creating now is the foundation to raise more and more and more voices um, that, that are, have not been heard. Yeah. Right. And the way to do that, I think, is you have to, once again, it has to do with privilege specifically. Yeah. But it also has to do with who am I going to talk to? And you talked about this with your uh, with your interview with Chris um, a while back. Yeah. In that, who should I be talking to? I'm not going to be talking at women about abortion, even if that's something which you know they might not necessarily agree with me on certain things. Yeah. Who am I going to be more effective? Mostly when I'm talking to men. Yeah. Reason or cisgender men. Let's let's be yeah. more specific. Yeah. Yes. A lot of times when people take, when men take a look at feminist theory and they take a look at feminist views, often they'll take a look at, oh, this is coming from a feminist viewpoint. Um, while I am absolutely a feminist, I think though that um, sometimes if it comes from me, it's going to come across differently. It's gonna come across where they're gonna see that it's less of a bias issue, but rather this is just actually a genuine issue. Yeah. Rather than saying, oh, well, this is you know, somebody lecturing to me again about feminism yeah. and about women's rights. Um, there's more of a chance that uh, somebody who might oppose the viewpoint may listen to somebody of their own gender, somebody who yeah. might look a little bit more like them, um, which is why it's important to be able to have advocates who are white, who are cisgender, who are male, um, who are, you know, of any other type of, um, you know, religious, ethnic, racial group. Yeah. Because those are the people who a lot of people will listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the core, like when we're doing this work from a place of love, 
even when we say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, speak to the wrong people, have the, you know, and I'm used wrong with an air quote tone. I don't know if we, <laughs> that comes through on the podcast, but, um, you know, if we're doing it from a place of love, there's always a way to recover. There's always a way to keep learning and growing. And we are, we're doing more good than we are harm, even when we mess it up. Cause we are messing it up all the time just to be human. It is the experience. Yeah. We are. And part of it is being able to accept that, but also to be able to accept when people let you know that things can be different, that you are messing up, which, yeah. um, which is just so crucial because if you're closed off to that and you just feel like I deserve a pat on the back because I'm a man and I support uh, abortion access, that's not good enough. You need yeah. to be able to realize that if somebody out there is saying, hey, you need to do something differently, especially if it's a cisgender woman or if it's a trans person and they, they're saying this, what you're doing is not helping, you need to listen and you need to be able to realize that you are not infallible. You can change and you need to be able to listen. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, I look forward to watching us both grow in this work. Um, I'm curious, as you were talking about um, about the two things, a question that popped to mind for me was, do you hope to stay in the DC area or are there other places in the country or the world that you want to um, do do this kind of work or move into other kind of work? Like what is, what is your dream there? Geographically, I grew up in the DC area. Okay. My first career took me to New Jersey and North Carolina um, before coming back to Virginia, which is where we live now and where we're, we've been pretty established, where my partner has yeah. uh, a career. Uh, it's where my son grew up and it's a wonderful place to be. So I think that we're probably going to stay around here specifically. Yeah. But other areas certainly do need help. And in terms of like, if I'm going to be able to try to make sure that people are aware of, for example, the laws that are being passed in Arkansas, which are absolutely insane, and which are not only trying to um, criminalize, very much criminalize abortion, but also criminalize Plan B, emergency contraception, uh, and all over these other places as well. Uh, to be able to lend a hand there, I'd love to be able to do that, whether that be remotely or whether that be in person. Um, if I have that opportunity to do so. Isn't so. that amazing that we can, we can say so confidently, even if I stay geographically where I am, I can make an impact all around the world and yeah. certainly around the country. That's, we live in an amazing time that we can. Mm-hmm. We really do. And COVID, I think, has been able to help with that a little yes. bit. But I think that a lot of just networking really helps out too when there had been uh, really just draconian laws that were uh, coming about in Alabama, that fortunately the ACLU was able to strike down, people realized that Alabama really has a very big uh, access issue. There are three abortion clinics in Alabama, in Tuscaloosa, Montgomery, and Huntsville. Very, very different parts of the states. I don't know if you've been to Alabama. I have not, no. Oh, it's good to have a banjo on your knee, apparently. (laughs) But because you have many different communities there, especially communities of color, which are so distant and which have, which make it so hard. There's so many obstacles in place to be able to get there. Having abortion funds, for example, is really just so crucial. Because of that, uh, it was able to allow for, um, for certain abortion funds to really get a little bit more prime space. 
the Yellow Hammer Fund, for example. Oh, amazing. They are, they are amazing. They fund um, abortions in Alabama and Mississippi. In fact, the Yellow Hammer Fund bought the abortion clinic in Tuscaloosa, which was looking for new leadership and new ownership uh, because they realized that this is something which needs to be done. They need to be able to have that type of access available there. So being able to let people around know about this, social media has also helped out incredibly when it comes down to what people can do. Um, if you take a look at TikTok, if you take a look at Twitter, any of the, you know, anything which is out there which is really showing uh, what the issues are and how we can at least make sure that others are aware, but also how we can help out. A lot of times it's really gonna come down to dollars because if you have obstacles, because you need to have a 48 hour waiting period in certain states and you need to, um, you need to stay in a hotel, you need to drive a huge distance, you might have to have childcare because most people who have abortions have already given birth. Uh, because of all of that, the, the bills, you know, they add up and sometimes it's about that specifically as well. So being able to raise that awareness um, has been able to be made easier in our times through social media, through the same type of networking. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you seen that organization, Just the Pill? And they ha now have a traveling, like a, a mobile clinic? I have seen Just the Pill. I actually spoke with them for a bit um, because we were comparing some of our uh, procedures. Yeah. Uh, Just the Pill is in Minnesota, I believe. Is yeah, that right? Minnesota, yeah. Right. So, and it's a really wonderful organization, um, which ran into some problems um, mm -hmm. right before the new president was elected. Yep. Because what they were doing is they were mailing out uh, after having a counseling session, um, doctors were prescribing medication and then from there, then that medication could then be picked up or mailed out depending on where it is. Safe medication, by the way, this is uh, mifepristone, which is safer than, than pretty much most other medications which are out there, which you're gonna get uh, anyway. But because the FDA had a ruling and because the Supreme Court decided to rule this way, they said, well, we can no longer do that. You need to be in person to a doctor to be able to do that, which is very prohibitive. In a place like where I live in you know, Northern Virginia, in the DC area, you can drive different places. If you're on one side of Minnesota, you can't go to the other side of Minnesota very easily. No. So being able to have that was really the lifeline for people who wanted to have abortion care, but could not do that traveling. So what they've done now, as you mentioned, is having that mobile care because that way you can actually go to these different communities. Yeah. So it's a long time, still takes a lot of money, still takes a lot of energy. Yep. But it's it's their way, which is they're trying to get around it. Um, yeah. Hopefully things are going to change again and they'll realize that this is a very safe and essential form of healthcare. Yeah. Even still, I think it's really innovative care to be able to connect with a human being um, versus getting it in the mail. I, I didn't, I haven't had the experience of receiving medication in the mail and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, an, it's amazing. Um, but even just to be able to connect with another human being and get a loving eye, you know, for some people that will be, will be a great resource. Perhaps. And I, I really like this resource a lot. Yeah. Um, telehealth has really been something very special and very helpful in this time of COVID. Yep. Because, you know, for example, our, we, we have moved over uh, much of our uh, patient education to telehealth. 
which helps out in so many different ways. Um, you know, you can have a telehealth session after you get home from work. You're not wearing a mask because you don't have to be in the office itself. You don't have to have two different visits in certain cases where you have to go through throngs of, um, of protesters and have to do that twice in certain areas. Uh, this really is much more convenient to be able to do so as well. And you can also see each other. So that's one of the great things that we're seeing is that telehealth is, is really permeating quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, but there have also been states that have said, well, this can't happen through telehealth, um, specifically for abortion care, which really is much of a double standard as, as you can have. Texas saying that, uh, you know, this, this is different from the other healthcare that's out there. Um, but having that helpful um, eye, have, having, being able to see somebody that way is absolutely uh, a wonderful thing to be able to have. Yeah. The passion is, is really needed. Yeah, even just the work I do, which is mostly after abortions, you you can watch somebody get on the screen and there's there's a shield up, there's some tenseness, some nerves, and then you just watch it melt away. And they're like, wow, another human being who who's with me and listening and loving me just as I am. It's it's powerful stuff. Wow. Well, thank you so much for this episode. I always like to ask what's come up for you along the way, or what did you come wanting to say that you haven't been able to share? What do you feel like this audience in this particular episode wants to hear from you or that you want to share? One thing which I often will uh, talk to um, audiences about, I guess, is that it's important to realize that sometimes language really does matter. Mm. I don't say anymore pregnant women. I talk about pregnant people. Yes. I talk about, uh, because you have to, it, it's, it's important for people to realize that um, people of, of, all, of all genders are, are able to receive abortion care and seek out abortion care. Some people think that that just simply doesn't happen, but you have trans men, you have non-binary folks for whom this is an issue and this is something where they, their voices really can't be ignored. Yeah. Uh, the other thing which I like saying is that, you know, being a male advocate for this, this is really, it's the bare minimum that we can do, mm. but it's important and it's okay to realize that this is, this is a good thing and it's okay to celebrate it. As a clinic escort, a lot of times what you're doing is you're just standing there. Yeah. You have, you have protesters and then you have patients who are coming in, but once the patients are inside and you're waiting for the other patient, you're just basically just staying out there. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you've seen, but you're, you're wearing these orange like vests. You're pretty much a traffic cone. Yeah. A lot of people say, hey, you're doing great work. And you can think it's like, I'm not really doing much, <laughs> but you are doing a lot. Yes. You're, you're out there, you're able to really show and demonstrate that yes, this is something, this is a, a value that I believe in. And I think that that's important for people to realize as well, that it yeah. is okay to be proud of what you believe in and have that be part of the work. There's yeah. a lot more work to do, but still having that is certainly something to be proud of. I love that. Well, you are just a fantastic human being. I'm so glad we've connected. Um, I love all the people in this, in this work who are willing to stand up and, and just take their one little plot of voice and share something. So thank you so much. Um, I'm excited that I now get to follow you because really I'm only 24 hours into learning, <laughs> learning about your work and your clinic. And um, yeah, thanks for being here. And thank you for doing what you do as well because you're making people aware of this too. Yeah.
We're doing a good. Together we rise. All oh. the people. Let's go. Let's change this. <laughs> it's time. Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice for.